that very first Good Friday was a day of responses. That day in human history, God supremely displayed both his grace and his justice, and people responded. As Jesus hung on the cross, battered, bloodied, the people around him react. They respond. And the key question is, how do they respond? Tonight I want to read and explore a passage from the Bible with you that shows us two very different responses to the crucified Lord. Two very different responses to Jesus on the cross. These two responses were witnessed on that simultaneously awful and wonderful day. And friends, these responses echo into our day as well. As we unpack these responses, the key question that we want to consider is, what is our response? How do I respond to the crucified Lord who hung on a tree for me? So let's turn together in our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. In the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find Luke 23 on page 884, page 884, and I'll begin reading in Luke 23, verse 32 through verse 43. Luke 23, verses 32 through 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We have several characters in this passage, but notice only two responses. Several characters, but only two responses. The religious rulers are the first to respond to Jesus on the cross. Verse 35, these religious rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. So notice how these religious rulers are responding to Jesus. They scoff at him. They sneer at him. They look at Jesus with disgust. They also doubt his true identity. They say, if he is the Christ of God, and for them this is a dubious if, 
doubt-filled, sarcastic if, clearly implying he is not the Christ of God. He is not the Messiah. He's not the anointed king who brings salvation. And then lastly, the Jewish rulers fail to understand the mission of Jesus. Notice what they say. Prove yourself by preserving yourself. Save yourself. If you are the Messiah and you hold all this unparalleled power, save yourself. In other words, prove yourself by preserving yourself. But that wasn't the mission of Jesus, was it? He came not to preserve himself, but to pour out himself. He came not to save himself, but to sacrifice himself. You see, if Jesus were to save himself on that first Good Friday, he would not have saved us. They misunderstand his mission. In God's economy, the wages of sin is death. It is what we are owed by God for our sin. It is the just recompense for our rebellion. The wages of sin is death. And the mission of Jesus was to come and stand as our substitute to pay that penalty in full. It is finished, was his cry. Debt paid in total. He's our substitute, our debt payer. So Jesus proved himself by pouring out himself. He is the king who ironically conquers through what seemed to be defeat, his body crushed at the cross in God's upside-down kingdom. That's the mechanism of conquering, not defeat. He is the savior who accomplished salvation through sacrifice. So the Jewish rulers don't understand the nature of his mission. So how do they respond? They scoff at Jesus, they doubt his true identity, and they misunderstand his mission. They scoff at Jesus, they doubt his true identity, and they misunderstand his mission. Well, the Roman soldiers are up next. How do they respond? Verses 36 and 37. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So they follow the same pattern as the Jewish religious rulers, don't they? They mock Jesus. They doubt his true identity. They say, if you are the king of the Jews, this is another doubt-filled, sarcastic if, clearly implying that he is not the king. And then lastly, like those religious rulers before them, they fail to understand the mission of Jesus as well. They repeat the enticement that the rulers did. Save yourself, prove yourself by preserving yourself. So this second group of characters fall in line with the same response. They mock Jesus, they doubt his true identity, and they misunderstand his mission. One of the criminals is up next. Notice how he responds to Jesus. Verse 39, he railed at Jesus, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. We ought to be picking up on a pattern here. First the rulers, then the soldiers, and now the criminal. Three different characters, same response. This criminal rails at Jesus. He mocks him, he scoffs him, just like the soldiers and the rulers before him. 
He also doubts Jesus' true identity. Are you not the Christ? Come on, are you really the Christ? And finally, he fails to understand the mission of Jesus. Save yourself and us. Prove yourself by preserving yourself. He doesn't get it, like the soldiers and like the religious rulers. Three different sets of people, but the same exact response. Mocking Jesus, doubting Jesus, misunderstanding the mission of Jesus. Well, as the story continues, we see a dramatically different response from the other criminal on the other side of Jesus. This criminal says in verses 40 and 41, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. You see, this criminal understands who he is in relation to Jesus. This criminal understands that he is receiving the just penalty for his evil deeds, this thievery. He admits his guilt. I am guilty as charged, and now I receive the due penalty for my deeds. He confesses his sin and guilt before Jesus, adjacent to him. Well, not only does the criminal understand who he is, he also understands who Jesus is. He understands his innocence. Verse 41, this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus is innocent, pure, perfect. Jesus is receiving a punishment that he did not deserve. You see, this second criminal understands Jesus is hanging as a righteous man, undeserving of this punishment. Understanding his own guilt Understanding Jesus' righteousness, this criminal makes a final plea to Jesus. Look with me at verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Just notice the, the intimacy and the urgency of his plea. He uses the first name of Jesus. This is picture of personal connection. And he knows that there's something very different about Jesus who, hung, who hangs right next to him. He understands that Jesus is some kind of a king who is coming into his kingdom. And this criminal asks if he can be a part of that kingdom. He wants nearness with Jesus, relationship with Jesus. He wants to be by Jesus' side in that kingdom that eternal kingdom. It's a tender and urgent reply from a man who's lived a shabby life all his life. So we find two extremely different responses to Jesus in this passage. On the one hand, mocking, doubting, misunderstanding Jesus. On the other hand, confession, faith, and a humble appeal to Jesus. Two dramatically different responses. And as you contemplate the cross tonight, as you consider Jesus hanging on the cross, what is your response to this crucified Lord? You see, the characters in the Gospels are not dry, distant characters in a book. They are historical eyewitnesses who encountered Christ and these words have been preserved through 2,000 years, delivered to us that we might situate ourselves 
in the narrative, in the story. These characters are like pairs of shoes that we are meant to stand in. I had a professor once who encouraged us as students to inhabit the text. Dane, you've got to inhabit the Bible. Don't just read it as a far-off, distant reality. Inhabit the text. Stand in the shoes of the characters. We're meant to inhabit it. Who would you say you identify with in the passage? What is your response to Jesus? Do you fall in line with the, the rulers, the soldiers, and the one criminal who mocked Jesus? Have there been times in your own life where you mocked Jesus or perhaps made fun of those who followed Jesus? Now, you might be thinking, well, Dane, that's ridiculous. I've never mocked Jesus. I've never spoken negatively of Jesus. I've never railed at Jesus like the one criminal at his side. Well, that may be true, but there's a subtle way that we make a mockery of Jesus. And friends, it's the way that we live our lives. You see, a life lived in pure independence of God, calling the shots of your life, being the master of your own domain, the captain of your own ship, that is a way that we make a mockery of Jesus, his kingship, that is a way that we shake our fist at him, that we may never voice something negative to him. We can mock Jesus by the way that we live our lives independent of Jesus. We've been wired to live in dependence upon him. And so we can make a mockery based on the way we live. If you are a Christian, one of the ways that we can make a mockery of the work of Christ is by living in habitual sin. Growing content with our sin, instead of being convicted and stirred from it to confess and repent, we grow comfortable with it. Friends, all of us deal with habitual sin, but beware growing comfortable in it. Turn to Christ desperately. Ask him, plead with him, as this other criminal did who lived a shabby life. He hears he responds. He forgives. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's a gracious and merciful, merciful Savior. But the way we live our lives can make a mockery of the person and work of Jesus. Later on tonight, we'll sing a song called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And there's a piercing verse in this song that goes like this. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Do you see what that hymn writer is doing? The hymn writer is helping us get ourselves in the shoes of the characters. Though we're 2,000 years removed, our sin now makes a mockery of Jesus. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the the scoffers, we've got to situate ourselves in the story, inhabit the text. Come clean with your sin tonight. The one who hung on the cross is gracious and merciful and forgives, loves to hear our plea for help and forgiveness. Thinking more about the response of the rulers and the soldiers and that first criminal, they doubted his true identity. And I wonder if you're here 
tonight perhaps doubting the, the true identity of Jesus, don't be ashamed of that. Oftentimes, we feel that we need to, to stuff our doubts and our questions. And I just want to tell you as a pastor here of this church, and I speak on behalf of the congregation, this is a safe place where you can speak your doubts, process your doubts. You do yourself no favor by stuffing it. We need to be able to talk them through. And I would also say, friend, doubt your doubts of Jesus. Hold your doubts to the same scrutiny that you do to the gospel accounts themselves. Oftentimes, we let our doubts, our misgivings about Jesus go scot-free, whereas we, we hold the gospel accounts, the personal work of Jesus, to a higher standard. Doubt your doubts. Are they founded? Investigate the claims of the Bible, the work of Christ, the evidence of the resurrection. Doubt your doubts. Speak to people in community. And the last part of their negative response, do you understand the mission of Jesus? Had Jesus preserved himself, he would not have completed his mission. Had he saved himself, he would not have saved us. Rest assured, the Bible says Jesus could have called 12 legions of angels to come and rescue him. But he didn't. In obedience to the Father's plan of redemption, of rebellious human beings, he stayed on the cross. This response of the second criminal is, is compelling for us. He admits his own guilt in the presence of Jesus. No excuses, no blame shifting. He takes ownership of his sin. Oh, the freedom when we take ownership of our sin before God. Don't hide it. He knows it. Just own it before him. Confess it. He believes the truth about Jesus. He believes the innocence of Jesus. He's a righteous man receiving a penalty that he doesn't deserve, and he's a king who's coming, who's unfolding a glorious kingdom. So he admits his own guilt. He believes the truth about Jesus, and he humbly asks Jesus to remember him. Seeks grace from Jesus. Yeah, he wants relationship with Jesus, nearness to Jesus. That's what our, all of our souls hunger for. The only thing our souls will be satisfied with is nearness, relationship with Jesus. Well, what is the result of this man's response to Jesus? At this criminal's request, Jesus utters the most gracious, hopeful, tender words that could ever fall upon his ears. Verse 43, truly I say to you, today, today you will be with me in paradise. I mean, can you imagine what this criminal is thinking at this moment? He hears these words of a crucified man right beside him. It's better than he hoped for. Not only will Jesus remember him when he establishes his kingdom, he's going to remember him today. You see, this man who asked to be in Jesus' kingdom was thinking, at the end of time, when you come, come to restore all things, I want to be with you. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 there's an immediacy today. When your life expires, O oh criminal, former criminal, you're going to be with me today. There's an immediacy to this nearness to Jesus Friend, a call to Jesus yields immediate results. A call to Jesus yields immediate results. 
the answer that we receive from him is beyond what we could ever hope for or imagine. This is who Jesus is. He's a lavish gift from God to us who forgives us, who cleanses us, who restores us, and who welcomes us into his presence for life eternal. This is the mission of Jesus' life. He came to seek and to save the lost. And notice, as long as you have breath in your lungs, it's not too late. Jesus is seeking and saving the lost up to the very last minute of his life. There's, there's an urgency here with this criminal. You can, you can just feel it as you read the narrative. The clock is ticking on this guy. His life is about to be snuffed out. And in those last moments of his life, he realizes his need and he calls out and there's an answer. That's the nature of Jesus. It doesn't matter what you've done, what your past looks like, how shabby you lived your life. A call to Jesus yields immediate response. He will never look at you with folded arms and say, it's too, it's too late. As long as you have breath in your lungs, you call to him. He hears. He gives grace. No matter what you've done, his grace is not dependent upon your works, your merits, your good behavior. The nature of grace is that it's undeserved, a free gift that we receive by faith. We often don't realize the urgency of our own situation. We often just rifle through life, impressed with our power and our technology and our toys, and we just think the next day is going to roll into the next. The Bible says that life is fragile. Your life is a vapor, a mist that is here one day and gone the next. We're not guaranteed the next day. The most helpful and wise response today is to turn to Christ and make things right. It's the most wonderful thing that you can do this Easter weekend is to stand before Jesus and get your heart right with him. Call out to him. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to enter relationship with you. Will you look to Christ alone for your salvation? Salvation is found in Christ alone. There is no other name under heaven by which men and women can be saved. No other name by which we can be forgiven and enter eternal life. Christ alone. Not our efforts, not our works, not our good deeds. They're all insufficient. Christ's work alone that we look to and receive by faith. Pastor and author Alistair Begg makes this reflection regarding the thief on the cross. I'd like to share it with you. Alistair Begg writes, many of us have been asked the question that often arises in evangelistic conversations. If you were to die tonight and you stood seeking entry into heaven and an angel of God asked you, why should you be let into heaven, what would you say? If you and I answer that question in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I am this, because I continued on the path. If we answer in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. The only proper answer is in the third person. Because he, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. I can't wait to meet that fellow in heaven one day and ask him, how did that shake out for you? You had never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership, and yet you made it. How did you make it? 
That's what the angel at the gate of heaven must have said. What are you doing here, sir? I don't know, says the thief. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. And the angel was speechless and finally goes and gets a supervising angel. And the supervising angel says, okay, we just have to get a few things clear here. Let me ask you a few more questions. Are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? Never heard of it. What about the doctrine of scripture? I don't know that one either. Eventually, in frustration, the supervising angel says, on what basis are you here? And the former thief on the cross says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross said I could come. Friends, on that final day, that is our only response. The man on the middle cross said we could come. If you and I take our eyes off Jesus, we will inevitably look to our efforts, we'll look to our experience, our achievements, and that is cause for either great pride before God or great self-despair. Neither of those are good options. The only response is to look entirely away from yourself, entirely to the Savior. The man on the middle cross said we could come. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your magnificent sacrifice. May we truly come to terms with it tonight, this weekend. Let not another Easter weekend go by without us truly savoring the work that you accomplished. Forgive us for being impressed with our own efforts. It is folly to live self-reliant lives, looking to our achievements, our ministry efforts. We can never do enough good to be made right with you. Oh, but we thank you that you've done the work for us. May we look entirely upon you, away from self, entirely upon you with eyes of faith. Encourage those here tonight who perhaps are just beat down in the rut of a sin. God, I pray that you would extend grace and mercy that we would be quick to confess and feel the freedom of your forgiveness. I pray for some, perhaps, who are not Christians. Thank you that you've brought them. May they call out to you and know that a call to Jesus yields immediate results. Draw near to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.